Hi and welcome to the Rocky Radio Show, a new geoscience podcast series dedicated to everything geoscience. And it's my pleasure to introduce Professor David Martill, reader in paleobiology at Portsmouth University. Dave works mainly on the paleobiology of pterosaurs and exceptional preservation of fossil vertebrates. He's particularly interested in the Cretaceous with projects on the dinosaurs of the Isle of Wight and the paleoecology of the Crasso Formation, Brazil. I hope I said that right. Dave will tell me in a minute. So welcome, Dave. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Uh, I think since you read that thing, things have moved on a little bit. And um, you did, you pronounced it the Crato Formation. That was fine in Brazil. Um, but a lot of my efforts now are, are based in Morocco, where I work on the ChemChem Group, a beautiful deposit of fossiliferous sandstones uh, that outcrops on the fringes of the Sahara Desert. Oh, that's fantastic. And I believe, is that is that now known to be Albion in age or is it slightly younger? Uh, this is this is one of these debated things. There's a there's a big thing about the middle of the Cretaceous all around the world. There are lots and lots of very very fossiliferous deposits, full of dinosaurs and pterosaurs and crocodiles and things, and they're all very very poorly dated. And the reason is that although we've got very very good stratigraphic frameworks for marine Cretaceous. We struggle a little bit with the non-marine, and very often you will hear paleontologists talk about something being from the Aptian or the Albion, and they often give a little shrug of the hands. Go, oh, it's ages about Aptian Albion, and that little shrug, uh, you know, that little shake of the hand there for that imprecision, actually is something like twenty-six million years. The Aptian and the Albion are amongst the largest, longest stages uh, in the whole of the Phanerozoic. Wow. Um, but these deposits uh, extend from the, the very base of the Cretaceous, at the end of the Jurassic, the seas were in massive regression. Globally, the tide went out uh, and left a lot of the land that had been covered by these continental seas, the epicontinental seas, became forested, full of dinosaurs uh, and uh, great things. And deposition was mostly characterised by large lakes, uh, big rivers and, and floodplain systems. Uh, we have them here in the UK. I mean, uh, the geology of Sussex is dominated by the Wealdon, the Wealdon Group, and so too on the Isle of Wight. And we tend to date them using the, the palynology. Uh, the trouble is with, with, with palynology, it doesn't give you the same precision that you have with, say, for example, foraminifera or nanofossils in marine Cretaceous strata. And so there's usually a little bit of slop. The material that I'm working on in Africa, in, in Morocco, used to be uh, very, very widely reported as being uh, Sanamanian, uh, sort of uh, middle or lower. Yeah, that, that's what I heard. Yeah. And, and, and the, reason, the reason for these dates was based on some deposits in uh, the Western Desert of Egypt, in what is known as the Bahariya Oasis. And many, many years ago, uh, German paleontologist von Stromer uh, collected Spinosaurus, which is now one of the most famous of the theropods. It's on, on a par with T-Rex now, and everybody has heard of Spinosaurus these days. Uh, indeed, the animal was perhaps slightly larger than, than T-Rex as well. And the, the deposits there were dated as Sanamanian. But it was on the basis of some bivalves that were in limestones above the dinosaur-bearing strata. And so, in fact, the Bahariya deposits were actually older than Upper Sanamanian. So the Sanamanian age for the 
uh, limestones on the top. It's very reliable. It's actually got some good indicators. There's not just bivalves, which are pretty poor fossils for biostratigraphy, to be frank. Yeah. Um, but there are some ammonites, and there's a very, very widespread and very, very highly characteristic ammonite called Neobolites vibrianus. And if you've got that, you know you're in the, in the lower part of the upper Sanomanian. And that also occurs in Morocco. And the sequences are remarkably similar. But it's that age that is, is, is correlated from, from Egypt over to Morocco that is, 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 is suspect. And a few people have suggested that the vertebrates might be used as the zone fossils. Well, that's a really bad thing to do. Uh, you very, very rarely find a complete vertebrate. So your identification of it as the same species is often um, is very, very poor. It, it, yeah. it's, it's likely that the Moroccan spinosaurs are the same as the Egyptian ones, but it's by no means certain. And we can't even compare our Moroccan material directly with the Egyptian material because the Egyptian material was destroyed in World War II. A bomb landed right in the middle of Munich's museum and destroyed the whole lot. So we can't actually make a physical comparison. So it's, it's probably fair to say that the, the deposits are rather dubiously dated. And uh, even now we, we, we struggle to, to, to come up with the right fossils. One of the things I'm trying to do is to trace these uh, strata through the Atlas Mountains to the other side of that fold belt and see if we can find a place where they're intercalated with marine strata. And I've been moderately successful in the northern part of the region where we work. I have found one limestone. It's a marine limestone. It has typical thalassanoides trace fossils in it. And there are some little marine bivalves and gastropods. Um, but COVID has, <laughs> COVID has stopped us going out there and, and, and doing some more work on this. And so until Morocco opens its borders, until uh, Boris lets us out and, and, and go to these countries that are not yet on the green list, I'm afraid to say that the research on trying to refine that age is now in, in, in suspension. And I've now, I've now, I think I've missed three field trips to Morocco. I'm desperate to get back there. So... Going back sort of back in time a little bit, not that far in terms of real time, but um, in your life. So what got you into geoscience in the first place, Dave? Well, a number of things. I mean, I'm one of these typical paleontologists who found some fossils as a child, was fascinated by them, then told that they were millions of years old and even more fascinated. And uh, as, a, as, a, as a young boy, I would go out on my bicycle collecting and uh, with a few friends, and it became a, a, a hobby. I really liked the fact that I was outside. Uh, I liked discovery, that's for sure. I, I loved the idea of, of digging and finding something or, or uh, splitting a rock and seeing something rather beautiful between mm. the, the leaves of the shale. But I quickly got fascinated in how fossils form. I mean, I'm, certainly I'm, I'm fascinated by what these animals did and what their evolution and ecology uh, was like. But I particularly liked the idea that you could investigate the route that an organism took from being alive to being dead, to being buried, to actually being turned uh, into a fossil by some magical chemical process that was going on in the sediment. And then when I was at university, I was at Leicester University and I had a great team there. And I can remember, and this is, this is going back 30 odd years, this is going back into the, the, the early 1980s, a long time ago and I can remember David Civita showing us some slides of ostracods these tiny little bivalved arthropods where 
the entire animal was preserved inside the shell. The, the entire animal was there. Uh, even, and I remember there was hoots of derision, when Civita told us that it, it had even got its penis preserved, uh, and that, you know, ostracons were magical animals, and they had two, they had hemipenes, they had two of these things, and there was this beautiful ostracod with both of its penises fully preserved from the Cretaceous. There was uh, this, we thought this was wonderful. And I got really quite fascinated about how that happened. How did these things get preserved when everybody normally thinks of fossils as being the bones, the teeth, the hard parts, the shells and things, not the soft, soft parts. And uh, things like muscles get preserved. And you think, and I don't mean muscles, clams, I mean muscles, I mean muscles as in biceps and triceps uh and i just thought that this was wonderful and why why would they be preserved why have they not decayed so rapidly and so i started to investigate the mechanisms of of preservation and it was in doing that that uh, while i was working in brazil we came across some fossil soft tissues of pterodactyls their wing membranes and at the time when i was a phd student there was um Dr. Unwin, who is now at Leicester in the Museum Studies Department, he was working on, on pterosaurs. And uh, a conversation went uh, along the lines of, oh, well, next time you're in Brazil, if you find any pterosaurs, we could do with finding some wing membrane. And I came back with a piece and then we, we worked on this. And so that got me into things like pterodactyls as well as into fossil preservation. Um, and I've really, I've not stopped looking at fossils since. I mean, I think I've been in the business now for 40 odd years, maybe a little bit longer. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. So thinking about pterosaurs, and there's obviously still a lot we don't know about them at the moment, but um, do you have any big ideas or predictions about what we might learn about pterosaurs in the future? Well, you're, you're dead right. There's a lot to learn. I would argue that there is far more to learn than we know already. And the more I study these animals, the more I realise that, it, first of all, it has to be a, a multidisciplinary effort to, to, to study them. It's, it's no good just being a paleontologist. Uh, you've got to have physiologists, zoologists, engineers, material scientists on board uh, in order to help you study these things. They are utterly enigmatic. I mean, there are some examples which are amongst the most exquisite, the most beautiful and the most perfectly preserved fossils you would ever hope to find. And then there's the stuff that I work on, which um, might as well be used as, as gravel for your drive. I work on bits and pieces, scraps that a lot of people would just ignore and they would think, well, you know, what, what's the point of this? But I work on material that is, 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 is kind of bizarre because it's, it's both complete rubbish material. You would you look at it compared to, say, a beautiful specimen from the Solnhofen limestone with its wing membranes outlined and every bone in place. Uh, and when I come back from Morocco, I end up with a bucket full of broken bones. None of them are articulated. Very few of them complete. But remarkably, with the bone preserved absolutely perfectly, and they're in three dimensions. And whilst I might be short of a complete skeleton, what I am able to do with the technology that's available now is I'm able to CT scan them and look at the inside of the, the specimens. I'm also able to chop them up because nobody's going to miss the odd bone. So I, I, I can have sacrificial specimens for making thin sections for, for looking under the microscope or on the electron microscope. And the other thing is I can model these 3D bones and make replicas 
of the bones that should be in front and behind. And I can actually print them out using 3D printers and manipulate them and actually work the, the degrees of movement that are permissible with the skeleton. And I think that technology has now opened up a series of new avenues. Uh, for example, we can use CT scanners and, and indeed we can use a very high resolution scanner. So we use synchrotron, for example, and we can look at the microstructure of the bone in three dimensions at a level that we've never been able to look at it before. So, for example, if we make a, an ordinary petrographic thin section of a pterosaur bone, we can very easily see that it's layered a little bit like plywood, but with layers that are very, very much finer. We can certainly see the cell structure, and sometimes we can even see the little canaliculi that link all the cells in the bone together. But with CT scans, we can able to, we can able we'll look at that some of that in three dimensions, and with synchrotron, we can look at all of that detail in three dimensions. And what we can do is we can have a look at how the bone is engineered at this scale, where we look at the bone and we go, oh yeah, look, this this is a neck vertebra. It's this long. It's it means that the neck is very long. It means that the neck has only got a limited flexibility because look at this joint and this joint and that locks it up. Then we can go and look at the bone down the microscope, the ordinary petrological microscope. And we go, oh yeah, the bone has got this structure here, this microstructure here. And that tells us something about the stresses that it's being subjected to and how the bone is responding to it in terms of its microstructure. And now we've learned that even at the cellular level, uh, we're seeing that the cells are organized in certain ways in different parts of the bone. Sometimes if you look at bone, it often looks as though the bone cells are really rather randomly distributed and the little canals mm. that link all of these cells together, it almost looks like chaos. But with pterosaurs, you actually see some organization there. And I'm sure that these things are related to getting the weight of the bone down, making the bone as strong as it possibly could be whilst being uh, as thin as it possibly could be, uh, but also um, transmitting stress so that, you know, a very thin bone, you just do not want it to snap. If you snap a, a neck vertebrae, you're mm. dead. Mm. Uh, and so you want to avoid doing that. And I suspect also in trying to make the microstructure of the cell as light as, as possible, as well as the sort of the macro, the, the cavities at the inside of the filled with air sacs are not the only ways that the bone is being made light. And I think that they're messing around with the, the way they organize their cells as well. And we're only now beginning to be able to, one, recognize that and have the tools to analyze that. Wow, that sounds fantastic. So... Are, are there any applications for the findings about pterosaurs in the modern world? Can we borrow ideas from them? Oh, almost certainly. I, I think if you if you look at the way nature achieves its objectives, whether, whether it's for running or diving or what have you, you realise that when we make a machine, an aeroplane or a submarine, you realise that actually we've used the same principles that, that nature uses. Because if you don't I mean, effectively, uh, we make machines out of metal. Nature makes machines out of bones and muscles uh, and whatever. But either, they're all machines and uh, animals are all machines for catching food and, and reproduction. And uh, the machines that we make, well, they're for whatever we want them to do. And if we need to go down to great depths, we need to make ourselves very dense. And if you have a look at a manatee that feeds on the bottom, 
what does it have? But it's made its bones very dense with what we call pachyostosis, and it does it with its ventral rib cage, and that lets it stay down there. And if we want to get a diver down on the bottom, we give him big heavy lead boots. With pterosaurs, what I suspect that we can do is learn how we might engineer materials that we build aircraft wings with, for example. It may be that we can find ways of uh, strengthening tubes. The one thing that a, a, a pterosaur is, is a set of tubes. Its wing bones are tubes, its leg bones are tubes. It, it really is a lot of big, long tubes. And they've all got to be uh, strengthened. And they've all got to be strengthened for different forces that are being applied to them. So, for instance, the legs will have a different configuration to the wings because they're doing a different job, but they've equally got to be strong. So what we can do, one of the basic things we do is look at the cross-sectional shapes, for example. And we see that they, the different pterosaurs of different sizes modify their wing bone cross-sectional shape according to the position in the wing uh, and the stresses that it's going to be applied to. So some of them have got circular cross-sections, the limb bones mostly circular cross-sections, whereas the wing bones tend to have flat ovals. Uh, sometimes they have T-shaped cross-sections and internally they have cross struts and sometimes they even arrange those cross struts in a particular organization. And they might even have spiral thickening around the insides of these tubular bones as well. So I'm sure that engineers will learn a lot by looking at the internal anatomy of pterosaur bones, uh, as well as the overall uh, shape of these things. Oh, that's, that sounds amazing. Um, so what, what's your latest project, Dave, or, or is it top secret? Um, most of my projects are top secret, but I'm usually so excited about them. I normally tell my students what they are. So they're top secret for five minutes and then they end up on Facebook or uh, Twitter. It's fair to say that at the moment we have a, a super project in Morocco that almost certainly will attract a lot of media interest uh, later in the year if, if we can get back to, to, to doing some field work. Let's just say that I've actually found a fossil you can see from space. Uh, I think I might know what you're talking about, but I won't say. And I, I know we've got something we, we've been working on, which um, which I won't mention either, because it's uh, a waiting press release. Yes, yes. Well, sometimes publishers can um, get a little bit stuck, can't they? I think that uh, you, 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 you do the science... You write the paper, that takes some time, it goes out to review, it comes back with some critiques, you, 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 you respond to the, the referee's uh, comments, uh, you then finally get the paper sent off, and then you just sit and wait and wait and wait. And I can imagine that, I, I, I never quite knew how COVID would play out. One of the things was, of course, that we stopped doing field work. So that might have made a lot of earth scientists a lot more time. Uh, we all love to go out to, into the field, absolutely adore going out into the field, but sometimes we can be a little bit slow putting pen to paper and writing up the results of the field work. So I reckon that I've lost out on about eight weeks of field work this year. So technically that's given me eight weeks in which I've got time to, to write up some results. If everybody is doing that, if every earth mm. scientist is now using COVID as an excuse to get some writing done, then presumably the journals are now inundated with <laughs> manuscripts and there's a massive backlog and everybody's waiting yeah. for their paper to come out. So I think I you're think exactly right, be Dave, because I've, yeah. I've, there's at least one paper 
which I've written in the last year, which probably wouldn't have been published if if it wasn't for for the lockdown and the sort of extra time. Although I, I have well, been I was, working. I was hoping on. I might write a. I was hoping I might write a book. <laughs> I was got a manuscript, and I was thought, oh, this will give me a great opportunity yeah, to. But not? not a chance, not a chance, because I, one of the things that has been problematic, of course, is that trying to deliver a degree course online is extremely time-consuming. And whereas I would just march into the lecture theatre with a PowerPoint ready to, 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 to plug into the computer and just deliver a lecture, of course, now you have to make sure that... Um, the, the lecture is written up and, you know, you have to respond to the questions over Zoom meetings and things like that. Mm. And uh, I think <laughs> that maybe some of the time has been stolen there. I sort of hope that we, we do take the learning from all of the digital learning tools that we've been trying and developing. But hopefully it will start to actually save us time in the long run. I, I, I'm one of these guys who often moans about my students, uh, you know, if they're late handing something in or it wasn't quite up to scratch and I know that they could do better but I have to say that I actually missed my students and um, finally we were allowed to give some practical classes but unfortunately because some students are still working at home and haven't come into the city it's not possible to give a practical class that is directly related to the the curriculum because it would be absolutely unfair on those students who were isolating at home and unable to to to, to travel and so mostly they're enrichment practical classes. Uh, and I have to say, it's an absolute delight delivering a class, but not having to stick to a, a rigid curriculum. And I found that I, I've been having classes where maybe I have only seven or eight students because everyone else is at home and they're not compulsory as well. So if they're nine o'clock, so they don't have to get out of bed and come to them. <laughs> and so I've been delivering practical classes as tutorials. Uh, and it's been an absolute delight because the conversation can go anywhere and I can ask the students if they're interested in anything in particular um, you know so what's your favorite marine reptile and if they say ichthyosaurs I go to the drawers and get the ichthyosaurs out and we have a jolly good chat about the biology of ichthyosaurs or their preservation and let the conversation meander and it's a it's a it's a real it's a delight so I, I really really hope that universities don't think, oh, we can save some money here. We can sack our lecturers and they can uh, just leave us the PowerPoints as they say goodbye. And we can go online and not pay some people. The, the real experience of university is being there with other people, learning from other people, chatting to people who are experienced like me, as well as to PhD students and to other undergraduates, and actually immersing yourself in the subject. And I absolutely mm. look forward to getting back to being a proper university lecturer uh, and having the students around me uh, rather than looking at them on a Zoom screen. Oh, do you know what? I don't remember learning that much in most of the lectures I went to, but when it came to the practicals and the field work, that was where I learned all of my stuff. I'm a much better field geologist than I am a sort of an academic. And you know. Absolutely, and it's because of the relaxed environment of being in the field. Um, it's uh, if you're if you're a student in a lecture theatre and there are 60 other students with you, the lecturer is sitting at the front. Uh, the chances are that in the first year he's not going to, going to even know your name. And yes, you have unless you happen to be his tutee. But once you get out into the field, that completely changes. And the best thing that uh, we do at Portsmouth is we have a 
residential field trip at the end of the first year. And that is the time that we get to know the students and we immerse them in uh, geology and paleontology. Uh, and uh, of course, we, we go to the pub in the evening uh, and have a, a chat in a much more relaxed atmosphere than, than the formal uh, atmosphere of a, of, a, of a university lecture theatre. I mean, lots of other disciplines do have extensive fieldwork, but I think the earth sciences more than anybody has, uh, has fieldwork. And my experience over the years has, has been that geologists are a friendly bunch. That's certainly my, my experience as well. And they used to be a drunken bunch as well. I, I'm not sure they are so yeah. much now. But oh, well, maybe, maybe I will be in the pub one day, perhaps with you, Dave, if, if, if I get down uh, your way sometime soon. Absolutely. Uh, it used to be, I can remember when I was in a, a local geology group in Leicester, the field trips that we used to run, uh, there was a morning site visit, then there was lunch in a pub, and then there was an afternoon site visit. And I seem to remember that some people would then at the end of the day probably go off to the pub before they went home as well. That doesn't happen now. University field trips also used to be like that. I can remember I can remember when I first started at Portsmouth, we would do a field trip to the Isle of Wight, the introductory field trip. And we would actually go and stop off at a super pub uh, called The Buddle uh, on the south side of the Isle of Wight. We would go down to the coast, we would collect some fossils and come back to the pub and have our lunch there and a pint uh, and get to chat to the students. And then we would go off to the Dinosaur Isle Museum for the afternoon to go and look at some dinosaurs my next little holiday might be to the Isle of Wight. Yeah, well, let me know. I'll, I'll introduce you maybe to some of the private collectors who've got far, far better fossil material than in some of the museums. Oh, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised. Secret, secret <laughs> yeah. dinosaurs. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. So uh, what, what advice would you give to anybody hoping to study paleontology? Um, first of all, I would say... Ask yourself uh, why you want to study paleontology. If you want your career in paleontology, then my first words of warning, you have got to be in it for the long haul. The route is get yourself some good A-levels to get to university. Um, do yourself a geology or paleontology degree. You will then almost certainly have to stay on to do a master's and then a PhD. Well, that's seven years. Three years for your degree, one year for your master's, and three years for your PhD. That's when you then start to look for a job as an academic paleontologist. You will then, after your PhD, try to get onto a postdoctoral programme. You may be lucky enough to apply for a lectureship, uh, but it's likely that you'll have to get onto a postdoctoral programme. And more or less, you probably would have to do two years as a postdoc while you're trying to find a, a, a more permanent position. And so that's the long haul. The other thing that I would say is that you can duck out at any time because there are some jobs where you don't need to, to have that progression. You might, after you've done your first degree, go and do a master's in museum studies at Leicester, for example, and then go into the world of, of, of museology. And so that would be a little bit of a quicker route uh, in, in to, 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 to getting employment. Uh, but in the world of museums these days, money is tight and the jobs are few and far between. The oil industry, of course, employs paleontologists, but the oil industry is also a little bit in the doldrums at the moment. Um, mm. But once COVID is gone, or once Brexit is sorted and the economies start to boom, 
then the demand for hydrocarbons will go up and the demand for exploration uh, geologists and paleontologists will go up as well. Uh, but it can be a, a, a bit of a roller coaster. And if you're in the in the downturn, uh, you can find it hard work. If you're lucky enough to be on the upturn, then uh, then you might well be uh, very fortunate. But the other thing that I tell students when they come and visit at Open Days, I say that whilst the job prospects in paleontology are rather less, in geology they're high, and what you can do is you can do a paleontology degree, but then afterwards you can do a master's in another branch of the earth sciences, or you can just look at your degree as being a general science degree, so do a do a degree in a subject that you're passionate about, and then use that as a qualification perhaps to go into the teaching profession, which is, uh, there's always jobs for for scientists in, in, in absolutely i thought about that myself a couple of times oh well many of my students I, i've gone on some of my best students have been passionate about teaching and i tried to persuade them to stay on but they're very keen that they want to get into the classroom and, and, and teaching and seriously some of my brightest paleontologists have have not stayed in the, the profession but they've actually gone into teaching mm. uh, and uh, well good luck to them that's, that's, yeah that's great. yeah and they they can always come back into in, into the field in academia can't they you can do but uh, in some places it, it moves pretty quickly so you don't want to be out of it too long if you if you're thinking mm. of making mm. a comeback speaking for myself having sort of been out of that or not in academia going into into museums as i have and now sort of slowly spreading my wings a little bit and, and trying to get involved in, in research and writing papers. It, it's, it is quite tricky. Yeah, it, it, yes, you, you can kind of get out of it a little bit. I mean, if you're focused on a particular subject, then maybe it's not so difficult to, to read around on a fairly narrow subject. But it's like I, I try to keep abreast of the literature on dinosaurs and pterosaurs. And there is so much research being done. There are so many people active and there are so many countries that previously had very little paleontological output that now have a very significant paleontological output that the amount of literature that is, that is being published is amazing. And there really is not time to read it all. So whereas when I was a student, it was a special occasion when there was a paper published on dinosaurs or pterosaurs. You could read them all. Not a chance now. Not a chance. There, there are plenty of alerts that tell you that the papers are out. It's easier now to do a literature search than it has ever been. The amount of literature is so incredible that you really stand very little chance of keeping abreast of all of it. Uh, you invariably find that there is, there is stuff that you've missed. Yeah, I've, I've certainly noticed my, my inbox gets... Um filled with notifications from academia and, and research gates. <laughs> I'm very lucky and, and <laughs> my students are really, really keen, especially on dinosaurs. There's lots and lots of students love dinosaurs and they almost live for these things and they, they keep abreast of the literature. And it's very, very commonly the case that they will send me a paper that they've seen. You know, hi, Dave, have you seen this? Which is always very, very helpful. Yeah, that could be like your your filter for for all of the good stuff absolutely <laughs> oh, not that absolutely. everything isn't good but it's relevant to you there's a lot there's a lot of really fascinating stuff yeah. out there I, I i can recall as an undergraduate in leicester had a little teaching room a little uh, like a little mini museum and uh, every week new journals or every month sorry new journals 
were before they went off to be bound they actually came into our department and you could read all of the earth science journals as they came out and i can remember that first thing in the morning arriving in the uni we would go into there and have a look to see if there were any new journals and as soon as that new journal appeared we'd have a look at the at the uh at the contents page to see what new paleo papers they were and we would absorb it uh, all and, and you would read them all because um you, you wanted to know everything and now there absolutely is no time to even go slightly out of your subject area. Mm. If, I, if, if I were to try to read everything that was fascinating, I would get nothing else done, that's for sure. It's a bit like me in my, my inbox at work, because I, I work two and a half days a week, and by the time I've been off for a few days and then come back in, I've got all these emails and I could spend my whole day reading them. Well, so my, I... <laughs> my, former, my former professor at Portsmouth, he used to go away on fieldwork in um, South America. He was working on uh, oil fields and structural geology in the Andes, I think mostly in Colombia. Uh, and he would be away for a month at a time and he would come back and he would see his emails and he would just go select all, delete all. And I used to think, well... No, well, if they really need you, right. they will call. That's what I no, sometimes they, that, think. That was absolutely his approach. <laughs> if it was really that desperate, that urgent, they, they will get back in touch with you. Yeah. I think that the thought of actually looking at one month's worth of emails, I mean, that scares the hell out of me. If I, if I go away for a one day's field work and I come back in the evening and switch on my emails, there probably is 100 emails uh, and while some of them might be spam or very tedious bureaucracy, there's a whole load of them which I feel I ought to respond to. And you sit down there and you do it, and all of a sudden you realise it's bedtime. Your whole evening is gone. I mean, my fieldwork in Morocco, what is, what is so really cool about Morocco is that they have got super internet access. You can make, uh, you, can, you can pick up a signal, a Wi-Fi signal down in the Sahara Desert. You get excellent phone signals. And it's been like that for the last 15 years. And I can remember when we were right way down near the Algerian border, absolutely way beyond the last tarmac road and beyond even the, the, the border gravel track roads in the total wilderness. And we found a, a couple of small hills where if we stood in between them, they somehow focused the, the phone <laughs> signal and we could actually phone from the middle of the Sahara. There were other places where there was a guy, he said, I remember we, we met this Berber guy and uh, he, he spoke some French, which was great. And, and he's pointed to us and he said, oh, you see that hill up there? If you go up there, you can get a phone signal. And we did and we... We went up there and we did get a phone signal. Now, more or less, wherever we go, certainly the the small oasis villages, we we can get internet access. So I I when I'm on on fieldwork in Morocco now, I do my emails. I don't wait until I come back home. I do my emails while I'm out there. Oh, that but that bodes well for me if I end up going over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you try it on the Isle of Wight. Hmm. I, I, mm. I can't get proper internet in our museum store in Hastings. To live in Ryde, and uh, even now, there are, there, are, there are places where you, you really struggle to get a phone signal. Oh, but dear. there we go. There we go. <laughs> well, thank you very, very, very much, Dave. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Oh, happy, happy to chat. 
That was Professor Dave Martel from the University of Portsmouth. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Rocky Radio Show.